Thank you for joining The Ones Changing the World, India's first Future Tech Meets Sustainability podcast. And today I have with me Mr. Krishna Murthy Jatavalabula, who is a postdoctoral associate at MIT CSAIL with Josh Tannenbaum and Antonio Torelba. He earned his PhD at Miller and the Robotics and Embodied AI Lab. He is advised by Liam Paul over there. Krishna's research vision is to enable embodied agents to perceive reason and act intelligently. To achieve this, his work intertwines our understanding of the world with deep learning machineries. Krishna's work has been recognized with PhD fellowship awards from NVIDIA and Google and a best paper award from IEEE RAL. So Krishna, I really appreciate you taking time and being part of the podcast. Why don't we start with a brief introduction? Because, you know, I, uh, when I kind of uh, chanced upon your work, I mean, you, 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 your work is extremely diverse. You're working on building intelligent machines. You, you had your hands wet with NVIDIA and Google, and autonomous vehicles. So I would lo- love it if you could give your introduction in the journey. Thanks for having me here. And uh, I guess the best way to, uh, the way I look at myself, Uh, is I'm primarily a roboticist by training. So most of the work that I've done, it's spanned uh, several domains, as you pointed out, but most of them still come back to robotics and like how robots or intelligent agents can eventually be deployed uh, pretty much everywhere uh, in our daily lives. So uh, this all started back as an undergrad when I was just uh, primarily interested in building robots as, as a hobby and uh, I, I used to do robot contests at that time like building robots participating in like uh, technical competitions all over the country and uh, I guess slowly I realized that I'm more interested in uh, carrying out research in this field so I decided to like pursue a master's to first uh, kind of you know get to know my interests better because robotics as a field is really really broad there's there's all sorts of you know, there's predominantly industrial robots, there's uh, robots that uh, are outdoors. Uh, in, in many countries these days, there are autonomous cars, uh, or at least autonomous cars with human operators. And there's, there's also robotics for households. So the, uh, just to explore the breadth of uh, applications, I decided to do a master's first. And uh, during my master's, I worked a lot on robot perception or like how, how do robots perceive the world from cameras primarily and uh, th- this to me was really challenging because perception is uh, is a really hard problem like humans just look at uh, their uh, surroundings and immediately make sense of what's around them but this is a really hard problem for robots because all they uh, see is like numbers streaming in from cameras and can you make sense of the world from those numbers and yeah, so gradually that, that's when I got into robot perception and then I figured I needed to do a PhD to get more, uh, deeper uh, into research. And during my PhD, I, uh, I did a variety of work, again, primarily in robot perception, but I also got into robot planning and control. And uh, I, I think there was also a significant shift uh, from outdoor, like autonomous driving to more of the indoor uh, robots kind of work. Uh, and yeah, now after my PhD and I'm here at MIT, I've, I've just been here for uh, three months. So it's, it's still early days as a postdoc, but uh, yeah, that, that's my journey, a, a very brief snippet. 
Where does the current innovation stand with robotics? You know, if we had to get to autonomous robots, which has the same dexterity as us, because the, the way we learn, because you mentioned, you know, we've got multimodal learning, you know, perception, how we perceive the world and, and to kind of make, represent that in a machine, it's, it's an extremely different problem with an embodied AI, a robot. How, how does that work? Where does the current state of the art research stand when it comes to robotics? There has been significant amount of work in robotics so over the past several decades, maybe the last 30, 40 decades, uh, like 30, 40 years have seen the most uh, improvement. And I guess there are uh, these days, there are like several systems that are deployed uh, in industry that actually are much more efficient than humans at, at a few uh, kinds of tasks. For example, a lot of uh, logistics companies are using where, uh, warehouse automation technologies where robots just ship products. Like they, they help in making this pipeline autonomous uh, to a large extent. And we also see like several manufacturing chains make heavy use of robots. And the key thing here is uh, if you look at an industrial setting, it is you have a lot of things under your control so you can control the environment you can design the environment to suit your robot but uh, the challenge really lies when you want to bring robots out of control environments into the real world so uh, think about autonomous cars so uh, autonomous cars have uh, there's been uh, we, we could sort of call this a great promise because for this uh, last several years autonomous cars have been promised with uh, each year, you know, the actual deployment uh, estimate date uh, just keeps getting pushed back a bit because uh, the more roboticists work on deploying robots into the wild, the more challenges uh, they they encounter. Uh, so I, I guess the one of the main challenges for robots is to like, you know, be present among humans and navigate uh, amongst humans and interact with them because that that is just not the scenario that robots have excelled at they, they're excellent at uh, environments that you can control like warehouses where you can control everything you can set up cameras to kind of estimate uh, the state of each robot and you can basically if, if a robot is going haywire you can just tell it uh, you know you, you're not uh, where you think you are, you need to correct yourself. Uh, but you, uh, it's it's unimaginable to do that at scale. Like uh, even autonomous cars, if you look at it, some of the most successful solutions that exist currently, they work, you know, in cities or like in very well constrained highways, or even the work everywhere. They they have some restrictions on the kind of weather conditions you can use it in, and all of those things. So like getting a solution that can step out of these controlled environments and like you know basically work everywhere in unconstrained environments is the biggest challenge for robots and as you rightly touched upon a, a big chunk of this boils down to good solutions for robot perception and ba basically I, I think of perception the, the best way to think of perception is like this uh, imagine you just wake up in some place that you don't know and you need to get home and what you do is you'll kind of look around yourself. You, you try to localize, uh, as, as they call it, like you want to know where you are. And then you also need to know what you need to do to 
get to where you want to go. So uh, like, you know, if, if I wake up today and I need to go to my office at MIT, I'll make various kinds of plans. So do I just take uh, the subway or do I take a bus or do I just feel like biking or walking uh, because today the weather is so pleasant. So th- there's a lot of things that we humans just uh, subconsciously, uh, you know, take lots of decisions on. But for robots, they need uh, all of this process needs to be made explicit. They need to know where they are. They need to know what the goal is. And they need to know what uh, options are available to them to achieve that goal. And if any of these go wrong, the, the consequences can be disastrous. So, yeah, uh, that's, that's basically one of the biggest challenges with robotics right now. Right. You, you're pointing out to the slam prob- problems uh, with, with the robotics. And then you also mentioned about uh, autonomous vehicles. A- and you have spent a considerable amount of time with uh, autonomous vehicle. And you mentioned that obviously that, you know, some of the top minds around the world, you know, be in the academic area or, or the startups area are working on the goal of, build, you know, creating that level five autonomous vehicle. What according to you are still maybe those challenges if we kind of you know overcome we'll be able to you know come to an autonomous uh, level five uh, driving solution yeah this this is interesting and this is a problem that we talk about often like i've chatted a lot uh, with my academic advisors and collaborators a lot uh, especially early on in my phd when i was kind of sure that i wanted to do autonomous driving uh, but but then I got more interested in like uh, some of the more fundamental problems in perception, like w- without coupling it to any of, uh, any particular task like driving or indoor robots. Uh, I, I think I'm now more interested in just uh, understanding perception, reasoning, and solving those as standalone so that these can be deployed among uh, a wide diversity of solutions. But w- when it comes to autonomous driving alone, uh, so we did some work uh, a few years ago and it was called MapLite. Uh, it, it was a system for autonomous cars to navigate without a prior map and uh, without a prior dense uh, geometric map, I, I must say. So why did we do that? And and th- that really is one key answer to this question. So. If you think about uh, most autonomous driving solutions that are deployed today, they're deployed in urban centers where, uh, you know, roads are really well-maintained, paved. And even there, they have like geographic restrictions on, you know, where the car can drive itself and where you need to take over. Uh, For example, construction sites uh, just create new road rules that uh, systems currently are not equipped to handle. uh, So they need some form of human intervention to be able to handle that. So, but if, if you think about urban centers, they account for, just speaking about the U.S. alone, maybe 20% of the roads in the entire U.S. are urban centers. And we, we had some initial numbers from a report early on in our paper. I, I need to look up uh, the exact number, but it's around 80% of the roads, they're rural. And they're not well uh, paved all the time. They're not uh, too well maintained. and you know, even to map like a little chunk of a city, a city block, it takes terabytes and terabytes of data. And these maps go out of date pretty quickly. So if there's construction or the road uh, gets repaved, you need to rebuild the map for the cars to be able to localize themselves and 
drive around better. But think about rural roads where there's like vegetation around the road, uh, which is pretty seasonal. It grows and then sheds, or maybe there's snow, there's, there's rain. So it's, it's impossible to keep an updated uh, map of the entire US alone. Like uh, it, it, you can imagine how big a problem this is going to be if you want to scale it around the world. So one uh, challenge to tackle is how can autonomous cars drive around without maps? And the way we did this was think about how humans do it. Like humans don't have a very dense map of the entire world when they're driving. Uh, and and in, in the extreme case, uh, or maybe in most cases, humans do not really know where their destination is. They rely on some external uh, navigation mechanism we just tells them, you know, go uh, go take the next right and then cross three intersections and then take a left and then just keep going straight until you reach your destination. So th those are broad kind of topological instructions that humans are able to follow. And like within each instruction set, like, you know, take the next right, humans are just responding to what happens in the environment. There's a purely reactive behavior. So we, we try to do this in an autonomous car, uh, which is say, uh, now we have an autonomous car, which does not have a dense map of the environment. It just has weak topological cues, uh, you know, sort of the Google map analogy saying, uh, you need to take right the next intersection and then cross three intersections and take a left. So that kind of loose instruction. And in between all of that, you need to drive reactively. So we, we develop like elaborate localization algorithms, uh, when you had like these very, very weak uh, topo uh, topological maps and then can you reconcile them with your local sensing data to determine whether or not you've reached the intersection and uh, carry out uh, planning and control and all of that. So uh, I think that's a really uh, interesting direction for me uh, that autonomous vehicles could take uh, like a mix of or, or like Currently, autonomous vehicles have this crutch of having this known, very dense map of the world to be able to drive better. So they're, they're like training wheels of some sort, and those wheels need to come off at some point for, for them to be uh, able to navigate in the world. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, this seems like such an easy prob problem, but, you know, it, it's such a huge challenge because, you know, when we humans, when we drive, there's a lot of intuitiveness. You know, I mean, if we take a left, right, you know, how do we build that and represent that into machines? You know, possibly... Uh, I mean, if you today, I think there is some fantastic innovations happening, you know, in, in the space of AI, deep learning, uh, and, and there's some great uh, models out there, you know, with GPT-3 or Gato, which uh, and OPT-175. Uh, that's awesome innovations happening, but most of them are in a very narrow space and can do one specific thing. Right now, I think whatever we're building, the race is to get to possibly a general purpose machine a machine that would be able to possibly do not just one thing but possibly a, a you know a couple of thing or maybe emulate us humans your work research work is i mean when i read that you've been spending time in building intelligent systems would you like to talk a little bit about building intelligent systems? And if you're building intelligent systems, what are the things around that you need to integrate to build an intelligent system? Yeah, uh, this is, I, I guess, my my favorite question so far. And uh, I, 
I talk about this often, so people who already chat with me might know some of my stances and uh, on all of this. But it's it's good to be able to share this on a platform like this. And so we we've witnessed lots of advances in uh, AI and machine learning over the past uh, you know past few years, especially from twenty twelve. There's there's been a significant shift in the community, like. Uh, the computer vision community is now shifted from uh, shifted completely to using deep learning techniques for perception. And uh, as you said, more recently, we've been seeing all of these large language models taking over. So AI has significantly, you know, penetrated into all of these fields, uh, and people are just beginning to use AI technologies. Uh, uh, and training them from scratch, essentially on large chunks of data. So one one pattern I've noticed with all of these successes is there there's a large amount of compute involved, but there's also enormous amounts of data involved. So we need data of the scale of ImageNet and like uh, large GPUs to make uh, connets like uh, possible for most tasks that are uh, used today. And for uh, language, we needed like uh, you know all of these billion parameter language models that are coming out. So they need lots and lots of data to be able to succeed. And uh, I kind of buy into the fact that with lots of data and lots of compute, these models will keep getting better. But unfortunately, uh, real world robotics is one area I feel you will not get uh, that scale of data for. And, uh, and the reason is quite simple. Like imagine one robot uh, running around your house uh, and in a few days, it'll be able to collect data off your house alone. And the, the, uh, your house configurations might change over months and years. And uh, the data just does not simply account for all possible scenarios that might occur in your house. And think of all of the other houses you might have uh, in the world. And uh, if you think about just ground robots versus flying robots versus, uh, you know, quadruped robots that just walk around. There are different kinds of robot uh, mechanisms, uh, robot structures, and different kinds of sensors for each of those robots. So getting data across all of these uh, sensory motor configurations uh, at scale that is required to train all of these models, I, I think it is, uh, it, it is like extremely hard to imagine a scenario where this would happen, especially uh, with all the concerns around, you know, collecting data amongst humans and uh, all the privacy and other issues that might arise, uh, I don't see this happening like uh, anytime soon. So, what's our best bet in that case? Uh, so, assuming you'll get a large quantity of data, but not enough to just like be able to deploy all of these billion parameter solutions, what's what's the best way ahead? And my answer to that is humans have a very good understanding of how the world works. Like, uh, and, and even if you look at all of the robotic solutions that existed uh, over the past 20 years, they've all been, uh, they've all had this pattern where you take a, uh, your, your best model of how the world works and you implement that in a robot. And that, that's, that's that's how robots like start reasoning about the world. 
so think of all the rovers that you send to uh, like all uh, uh, all these planetary missions. Uh, you know, rovers have been sent to Mars that have survived for more than uh, a decade on like another planet where you cannot control a lot of things. And that, that's all because you have good mental models of the world programmed into robots. And that, that's where I want to take my research to. Like, uh, we, we know a lot, like we've invested a lot of uh, several years of research in computer vision, computer graphics, and like physics uh, to understand all of these. And my research goals are, can we somehow bring all of these uh, mechanisms that we developed to understand the world? And can we like embed these within these uh, deep learning systems as opposed to like throwing all of the data away? So a significant shift when deep learning took off was people tend to forget or, or like dis discard all of the knowledge that they have a priori, like classical robotics, classical computer vision, that all just uh, somehow got sidetracked and all people want to do, or, or most people these days just want like train models, throw enough data, throw enough computer and hope that it works. So my research program or agenda is to kind of bring back uh, all of the things that we know about the world and integrate them with uh, deep networks as opposed to throwing them away. Lovely. Yeah. I mean, you know, obviously you mentioned, you know, there's one field of, of researchers who are working on uh, creating or, or trying to build intelligent machines with, you know, overloading and feeding the data. And you mentioned that obviously, you know, that uh, with, with the data privacy, uh, the, you know, the there might be shortage of data. But I, from my side, I see the other way around because we, we're getting into a connected world. And I think in the next few years, because of the, the us transitioning from Web 2.0 to Web 3.0 and, and getting into a digitized world, the metaverse, I, I think there'll be humongous amount of data collection from anything and everywhere, right? From your, your augmented reality, virtual reality glasses, where wherever you kind of look, you know, all the data will be connected to the cameras or on these autonomous vehicles. Uh, I mean, the kind of data that's going to be collected to these sensorization of the entire world through iot internet of things you know uh, there'll be humongous amount of data i think being collected and yes i think privacy is obviously currently we've been ignoring because you know we are in a race to acquire data because data is the more or the oil and through data we can create intelligent machines so we are in a cash 22 situation so i feel obviously there's going to be a lot of data which is going to be co collected but but yes your approach of you know building these world models and not going towards too much of data but you know taking all those world models and building something i think it could be a a a, 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 a great approach now uh, uh, there is you know the when you take when you're kind of building ai from your lab to research to going into you know industries real world use cases there's always a gap you know it takes a lot of time where do you think is the problem and what can be done to create kind of a you know like an academia government and industry stakeholders all together because even with i think innovations what's happening today is that everything is siloed can that approach maybe you know like an open approach lead to faster acceleration of these technologies uh th there's been this big uh, revolution of 
industry-led open source projects. Uh, for example, uh, a lot of the deep learning libraries we use today, uh, may, maybe just stick names, PyTorch, TensorFlow, JAX, and uh, all of these tools are now developed and maintained by industry. And this, this also, but they're maintained in an open source model. So anyone, not just at academic institutes, but anyone out there can contribute, like fix bugs and so on. So this just uh, makes progress much faster. And we, we're already seeing how these libraries are being used by everyone to build all of these exciting new tools. So yeah, I, I kind of like uh, the trajectory. We're not like, uh, obviously we're not quite there yet in terms of where we want to be, but uh, the trajectory looks quite promising. Yeah, yeah, I think we we living in exciting uh, point of time, you know, with so many cool things happening, and you know, geography becoming history. Just last week, I was having a conversation with the ex uh, uh, IIT uh, Delhi uh, prof director, Professor Rao, and he was mentioning that how it's becoming more and more difficult to you know gather or hold students in the classroom because i think the entire education industry is upending because you know students are understanding that the internet is the teacher you know the MOOCs, the massive open online courses these courseras giving you these courses education itself is transforming and and i guess these these democratization of knowledge you know by these open ais and i think it's really really cool because it it's it gives gives access for anyone like even the facebook or uh, opt 175b uh, it, it, it's created uh, uh, you know access anybody can you know as a researcher you can go and access these tools uh, would you like to talk about uh, about uh, you know the cutting edge uh, of uh, innovation right now you know because I was reading about Gato's multi-model, multi-task, multi-embodiment, gen, uh, generalist policy agent. Then, you know, there is uh, obviously the open AI's Dolly 2 plus versus Google's image in AI, which AI text to image generator, like really, really cool things happening. So would you like to talk about the state of art of innovation of, with AI and and what do you see coming in the next few years? Yeah, so uh, I mean, as, as you said, we're living in really exciting times because we, uh, all of these technologies are coming out, you know, and, and they're coming out at the pace uh, that it's it's almost hard to keep up with them. And, you know, when, when I started out as a master's student, there were probably, I know, like, uh, uh, if I look at the computer vision and pattern recognition uh, tab of archive, we probably used to have like eight to 10 papers on average per day. And now, it's it's almost an order of like a hundred per day so it's it, it's insane to see like the pace at which research has grown and uh because of this it's also hard to keep up you know uh you could have imagined a time where you you just go to a conference and they're like 50 papers at the conference and you read all 50 of them you're up to speed but uh, this is no long, longer the case there's like 100 papers a day and that's just like uh computer vision so yeah, there, uh, but there have been like a few major breakthroughs. Uh, so as, as you said, all of these large language models are extremely cool. And uh, especially now people are beginning to explore these connections between language and vision. So uh, Dolly 2 is, uh, is it's pretty amazing. Uh, you know, pe people have always thought that generalization is actually a very hard problem in uh, for all of these models, but they're showing that with scale, 
you can achieve some forms of generalization. Uh, this is not to say that all of these models are extremely general and can do anything. They have lots of limitations right now, but uh, you know, if you'd asked me two years ago, uh, if you told me that uh, you know in two years there'd be this amazing model where you can just type in text and it generates images, I, I, I would not believed you. So uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of amazing to see you know, all of this progress. Uh, Google's Imogen is also an example. But uh, in, in terms of robotics, one really big innovation that we're seeing because of all of these models is uh, these models can be used to specify goals. So if you thought about robotics in, in the traditional sense, now, uh, the, uh, this is how a traditional like uh, reinforcement learning pipeline for robots would look like. So uh, you have a robot and you have like an environment, uh, either real world or simulator, and then a robot carries out actions. And at the end, the robot gets some reward. And that reward specifies how close the robot got to the goal. And this reward had to be like manually specified. And uh, to be able to specify this in code, you first need to convert that into math. So uh, imagine a simple task where a robot needs to open a drawer. So you would need to somehow programmatically encode the fact that, you know, if, if, a, if at the end of the episode, the robot has pulled the drawer just enough to an extent, then there'd be a threshold there, then it'd be considered open. Uh, and that's just a drawer opening task, but uh, think about a task which now involves like make a cup of tea. So there's like lots and lots of steps involved in that. And how do you even score like uh, whether the robot has successfully made this cup of tea or not? Uh, but one avenue where all of these models shine, uh, the large language models is you can use them to uh, specify goals. So because language has such a rich connection, like uh, it has this inherent notion of semantics, inherent hierarchy defined, you can use that to do lots of interesting things. So you, uh, if you just say fetch a cup of coffee, then you can use language models to kind of reason about what do I need to prepare coffee in the first place? So I, I need a cup, I need, uh, I know milk, uh, I, I need whatever coffee and all, all of those hierarchical plans just, just keep forming. Uh, we've, we've been seeing some initial work in the space. I, I, I wouldn't say the space is like, uh, you know, made a major breakthrough, but uh, we, we've seen initial very promising steps. I can point to like the SECAN work from a couple of researchers from, uh, I think Google and every robotics, that, that's pretty cool. And uh, th there's also some work coming in uh, right here from MIT. Uh, I work with Antonio's group. So they had a paper, uh, I think, which came out a few months ago, which was uh, trying to do something similar. Like, can, can you use all of these large language models to enable robots to plan? So ro robots or like any intelligent system to plan, it needs like some abstraction of the world. Uh, you need to be able to specify all of this in like a very symbolic language, but natural language makes it just a little bit easier uh, for robot human interaction. So I, I guess that that's one area I'm really excited to see progress in. Uh, th that's not an area I actively work on. So that, that's, that's all the more reason for me, you know, uh, I, I always get surprised when there's uh, exciting results in that space. But yeah, I, I guess that's where the state of the art is at. But uh, I should, at, at this point, uh, you know, not all be 
uh, glorifying. And I, I should also say there's, there's like a lot of risks associated with all of these models. Like, uh, you know, there, there's, there's a lot of uh, bias in all of these large language models as we've been seeing. Uh, so it's, it's kind of important that as we begin to train all of these, we also think about ethical implications and like, uh, you know, do, do these models amplify uh, biases in the data set to an extent that these might uh, create harmful impact in the future. So uh, I think that's one really underappreciated area. Uh, like pe people are excited about seeing research, but uh, I also want to see more and more researchers thinking about these problems and coming up with solutions to, uh, or, or plausible solutions and, you know, collaborating with uh, the groups that design these large models. So yeah, I, I think there's, there's that side to uh, emphasize as well. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, we sometimes uh, the tech industry gets really excited by the things that they're building because, you know, I think we we laying the building blocks of what could be general purpose, these intelligent machines, maybe possibly in the next uh, possibly 50 years, not giving time, but, you know, that's what I, I think. So, but yes, there should be, uh, you know, an approach of creating these, these tools, which it, have uh, the, the the you know are human first you know because sometimes we can lose the the sight with our excitement now uh, there are a lot of these students here in india who would want to you know because of the access of internet are excited about the possibilities and want to build or be part of an institution you know or what would be your advice to them where do they start from you know I guess the main aspect for them to consider is what their primary interests are. I guess a lot of people that I talk to often, uh, they they kind of know that uh, they come and tell me that uh, they want to do a master's or a PhD. All of the extensive virtualization that has taken place, there's a lot of resources online and a lot of people around the world have been uh, you know, make, making research more accessible. So if you look at conferences, for example, early on, uh, and, and it's not uh, much earlier either. Like if I just think three years ago, like 20, 2019, maybe, uh, the only way I could access to all of those conferences was I would have to register and then I would have to do, read most of those papers. But now there are these accessible, like two minute videos of all of these papers. And uh, the, the other thing is people themselves are like advertising. So uh, since people no longer read these eight page or 10 page papers, they, uh, they've gradually, uh, you know, resulted in newer forms of dissemination. So there are blog posts accompanying most papers. So now I, I guess the trend is to get a tweet thread of uh, what your paper does. So like being on Twitter, following the right researchers has, has helped me a lot because that has helped me just, uh, you know, keep, keep up with all of the interesting research that's going on. Uh, but that's not to say like people should be on Twitter. Uh, uh, that, that's not the message I wanted to convey, but it's, I wanted to say that there's a lot of resources out there online that people can use to understand all of these new research. Like even if they don't get all of the technical details, they'll get a good sense of what's happening and I guess that's that's really important because uh, most of the times, a lot of people I see, uh, when I ask them what really motivated you, they'd say, oh, I saw this paper and, and then I got an idea that 
I could maybe do this and that result in a research project of their own. So like that, that's pretty useful. And also like whenever you get the chance to talk to other people in the area, like uh, just feel free to reach out to them, like talk to them. If you're at a conference, like don't hesitate to strike conversation with, you know, all of the other people that you want to talk talk to and uh, all of those connections have helped me a lot like in in several ways so uh, yeah i i would encourage them to explore like what their true passions are and once they have a good sense or even if they don't have a good sense they have a good sense of the distribution of where they want to be like take steps to kind of get there and uh, it it's usually a long process to get there but it, if you're passionate enough and uh, you, uh, you're willing to work through, then definitely it's positive. Krishna, really appreciate you taking time and being part of the podcast. Like I mentioned, I think we're living in fantastic uh, point of time. Uh, you, just three years before, I mean, just before COVID, things were completely different. But this COVID, I think, has been such a game changer. Obviously, it's created huge disruption, but the benefits has been insane, you know, because what would have taken possibly maybe a decade has happened in two, two years, you know, because uh, like I said earlier, I mean, we're getting into the web, 3.0 the transitioning from web 2 to 3.0 the metaverse the iot convergence with uh, augmented reality virtuality 5g all of these technologies are in, in a nascent stage and, and, and they are about to kind of explode i mean you know and it's so very important to kind of direct it to the, towards the right direction you mentioned about the problem with ai you know uh, obviously it's data hungry and and the power that it consumes you know that's that's a huge problem uh, so so there, there's so and, and the biases you know but we can if we direct it at the right place i think we'll be able to create something which is really really fantastic my last question to you what's your goal what's your vision and what do you see yourself in the next 10 to 15 years building yeah so uh, i was lucky to have identified uh, this goal like very early on so my goal is to have a long career in research and to be able to like uh, eventually direct a research program of my own, like uh, trying to build towards, uh, you know, all of these intelligent systems, uh, make uh, make the best use of both machine learning, but also to not throw away all of the classical theories uh, in robotics, computer vision and graphics that we've developed over the last three or four decades. And uh, yeah, m my main goal is to like keep pursuing a research program and uh, I I'd be really excited about directing a program on these uh, directions like uh, some sometime soon in the future Krishna yeah. uh, wish you the very best uh, thank you for being part of the podcast and to my listeners if you like what you see in here then please press the subscribe button until next time see you guys bye bye thank you Krishna really appreciate this thanks